Screen Time Stories is presented by Pinwheel, the smartphone that supports kids and teens through summer break and every other day. Pinwheel reimagined the smartphone experience to support healthy child development, and therapists backed the design. Fitness and education apps encourage kids to stay moving and avoid what teachers call the summer slide. I'm Julie, and as a parent, I'm sometimes overwhelmed by the challenge of raising my kids in the age of screens. Embracing technology and modern parenting is a must. Our kids will log on whether we like it or not. So let's lean into the challenges and joys of parenting with tech while we learn from the latest research and experts in the field. This is Screen Time Stories, parenting techniques for raising tech natives. Let's figure this out. Today we're chatting with Simone Hang, a public speaker and best-selling author of Secret Pandemic. Born in Singapore and living around the world, Simone works with organizations like Lucasfilm, Adobe, Google, the United Nations, and many, many more, teaching them how to build authentic connections. She focuses on the connections between mental health issues and relationships, and also how technology impacts all of this. Because we're wired for connection, loneliness increases stress, which results in further health issues. I think this is fairly well known, but easier to apply to ourselves than our kids. As the main advocate for our kids' well-being, we want to make sure they're engaging in authentic connections with us and their friends. Hey, Simone. Thanks for joining me. Your book on making authentic connections really spoke to me as someone that grew up before smartphones were popular. And now I'm trying to build relationships while keeping a handle on how technology helps and hurts this. Absolutely. So I, it, it's so interesting when we talk about um, childhood. The book was written for like the children of parents like mine. And what's been interesting is that publications um, like the Singapore Women's Weekly and like your podcast that are dealing with parenting have actually been like, how do we do the things Simone's parents did well? And how do we avoid the things Simone's parents did not so well when shaping our children? And what we do know very clearly, and I'm sure you've had other experts, is like children learn to love as they were loved. And my childhood, I grew up in Australia with very strict Singaporean immigrant parents. And this is often laughed about in like Ali Wong, like stand-up comedy, but no one was really talking seriously in my generation about how it affects how a child adapts to have parents who are very focused on material achievement, to have parents who are very strict, and particularly my mother who was extremely critical. Uh, Singapore was founded with a leader who was quite elitist, and that sort of thought system filtered down into the people in the country. And then as a result of that, women like my mum, who was an educator, a teacher at a very elite school, she took on all of those things, those beliefs in, if you're not intelligent and you're not getting an A+, you are not worthy. You know, you love should be doled out based upon achievement and good behavior and obedience and withheld. So love, it's not candy being used as a reward, you know, it's love, which is extremely damaging to a child's fragile sense of self-esteem as the child develops. 
and how much that created maladaptations in the way I connected with other people. And maybe outwardly, I was a I was good at masking my pain to some people, but certainly in how I perceived other people in my head, even though the Asian part of me was taught to always show a pleasant front, how I perceived other people was suspicion because I didn't get my needs for love and belonging met and human connection met from my primary caregiver. That certainly led to a lot of little T trauma and definitely changed the way I chose workplaces to work in. I chose lovers to love. Like it really affects how you grow up. And I became very high functioning and high achieving, but in a constant chronic state of fight or flight. I was able to come to the point where I could forgive my parents and take accountability for perpetuating the behaviors because we can't blame them for everything. If you are still blaming your parents for how you show up in the world, there's some healing that needs to be done. There's got to be some emotional hygiene where I draw the line, okay, these things happened to me and it was awful that they happened. But if I'm bringing these into new relationships with everyone from partners to colleagues to friends, that's now on me. We can only do better from now, Julie, right? We cannot change what we did, but it is never too late to change anything. You can only do better from now. And that stops a lot of the rumination around feeling bad or guilty of mistakes you made in the past. You can we, you can start from this exact moment hearing this podcast and turn the ship around. Isn't that amazing about life? That's so inspiring. And that concept of truly showing up by taking responsibility for our own emotional hygiene is spot on. I remember a section in your book where you talked about your Cavalier King Charles Spaniel helping you come to a realization. And this sounds silly, but it's actually really powerful. It, it was more the wag, okay, so the calves wag tails like none other. It's part of their characteristics. And what I noticed when we first got Charlie was when we would take her out, people would just be like, look at her tail. Her tail is so cute. They wouldn't actually notice Charlie. They would just notice the tail. So that's the first analogy that I realized is like I was almost um, peacocking behaviors larger than myself to mask actually me. So people would be noticing the needy behaviors um, and the behaviors that wanted validation and affection rather than the true authentic connection and love that I craved and that the way that Charlie wags her tail impaired the entire way that she walks. So if you watch this girl, like she's like a Beyonce, gajunk, 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 like when the tail wags, it's adorable, but it impairs how she walks. So my entire need for validation impaired the normal way that I could have connected with myself and just fluidly and organically connected naturally with people and I would have gotten the connection that I wanted versus the peacocking wagging tail which repelled showed a desperation in the way that I interacted with people that repelled the very connection that I wanted yeah I want to talk to you more about how we all do that at certain times because we all want that deeper connection but the issue is getting there First, before we dive into that, I want to start linking technology into all of this, how it helps and hurts us form connections. One of the points you make in your book is that teens are hopping on their phones and using them as a distraction. What's going on there? 
do you feel like they're trying to get away from feelings of loneliness or what? Yeah, I think what I think I cite an incredible, by the way, anyone interested in this topic, incredible talk about this by Simon Sinek um, online. And he talks about how dangerous tech devices are um, when teenagers are forming that fragile sense of self-esteem, you know, that time when we all felt awkward and we perceive that the whole world is looking at us when the whole world is not actually looking at us. Or maybe sometimes they are. It depends what high school you went to. But he was saying that, What's happening with the current Gen Z, and I see this on my own TikTok, if I put up a human connection tip, they'll say, I don't need human connection, I just need Wi-Fi connection. You know, horrifying for someone who knows the biology of human connection and how we need it to lower our stress responses and to increase our immunity and our lifespan. So he was basically saying that when you use people, certain people who use technology to... um, create fleeting connection of which they know their friends are never really there for them, that it gives them a sense of optionitis. There's always something better or people in terms of people become addicted to social media. And I definitely pre-therapy, that was me. And I write about it in the book using um, social media and the dopamine hit you get from the responses to your posts as a way to self-soothe. So we know people who have experienced some sort of trauma, self-soothe, food, alcohol, pornography, all the array of different wonderful ways the world can tempt us into different sorts of addictive behaviors. And uh, social media has a propensity to do exactly that. And for me, the moment I knew that it had that hold on me, um, I created boundaries and rules for myself. So I have certain boundaries and rules that I have for social media, I don't take photos of my everyday catch-ups with my girls. So last night, yesterday, I had two everyday catch-ups with the girls and no photographing food, no stopping conversation to say, oh, can you pose? Let's have a picture. Chinese New Year, Christmas, birthdays, special occasions or travel, I do take photos the same way you would in the analog days. Remember, we took the camera out for a christening. We took the camera out for a family reunion. But I was at the point, and it's very um, common here in Asia, where you're photographing every bit of food you're eating, every catch-up, showing people who you're with all the time. And I realized that I had missed about a decade of conversation in my 20s a decade of interrupted, think about this, I feel I'm going to cry just thinking about it, a decade of disrupted conversation because, oh, just wait a minute, you look really cute there, I want to take a photo of you and your food. So where's the happy medium? I define it for me and look, every single person is different. So find the solution that works for you. But for me, the rules are I'm allowed to take photos with my peeps, special occasions, travel, work events, Okay, which is normally just me without people anyway. Um, everyday catch-ups, people visiting my home, no makeup, cheese nights, that kind of thing. I don't, and I don't scroll. I don't spend time scrolling. I will organically and authentically like and love someone's content and leave a beautiful comment if it resonates with me and it pops up while I'm putting my own post for my workup. I pre-batch all of my content um, a week in advance, And it's done on that time so that the rest of my week, I know my business can be marketed, but that I can be present with people. And these are just things that work for me. The moral of the story with that chapter is, hey, what works for you? 
maybe it's like maybe you want to scroll you're not a creator you're more of a consumer and you want to scroll for like 30 minutes how often is healthy for you to scroll and when you're scrolling as a young teen are you does it make you feel better does it make you feel as good as when you're with your best friend laughing and hanging out now if it makes you feel not as good as that moment then maybe um maybe the scrolling isn't working with you so it's actually an exercise in self-connection sitting down with your tween or however young you've allowed your child to have a device and asking those questions so technology enables wider communication not deeper and i'm thinking about these middle and high schoolers that have a big following on social platforms how do we help our kids understand the limits of authentic connections there? We know from a guy called Robin, I shouldn't say a guy, a very um, well-respected academic called Robin Dunbar that human beings have like a ideal number, it's called Dunbar's number, of a groupings of 150 about the maximum our mental capacity can um, hold and it's interesting because I have thousands thousands of followers online but I as because I'm an adult and I had an analog childhood it's very easy for me to have the mental hygiene that 150 of these people are friends and acquaintance of acquaintances of an outer orbit and the rest of these people are simply followers I don't get that confused but I can imagine for a Gen Z how confusing that could be to not be able to sanitize between these are followers. These are not friends. Friendship is different from an online following. And what we know from many different studies, firstly, is that men go wider and more shallower than women go. Women go deeper and smaller with their relationships, which is why women outlive men by around seven years all over the world, except for in certain blue zones. And that is to do um, simply with the depth of human connection what we know is the kind of connection that increases um, our life expectancy are the people that we can call in an existential crisis, take us to a hospital if we're injured, loan us money if we're in that point. People we can truly be vulnerable with are the, the connections that do a lot of good for us. However, there is still value in positively um, polarised everyday interactions that you would see in a village for example I still live in Switzerland in the village everyone greets each other as they walk past they greet each other and we know during COVID that we all really miss this kind of what Susan Pinker calls the village effect this is also very important for our health so we we need both kinds of connection but we cannot have the second one I mentioned just that nodding and acknowledgement without having that first deeper form of connection and we, a lot of experts say that digital connection is a junk food version of in-person human connection. It is momentarily tasty, but it doesn't nourish our bodies in the same way that we need um, authentic human connection. It doesn't nourish our bodies in the same way. So reducing that, in fact, it increases our cortisol a lot of the time, digital interaction which is why we've seen a backlash against online dating, like like app dating. This is why people are like, I'm off the apps now. We, the critical point has been hit and the ship has sailed because people have realized it doesn't satiate us in the same way that we need um, romantic connection. 
If you're already feeling a little bit lonely, could that spiral by hopping onto a social media site? Yes. So listen to me. Social media is fun when you're on top. Social media is all fun and games if you're happy. It is not, it is a very dangerous place to be if you are in a mentally vulnerable state. And I say that with the deepest empathy from being on both sides of the coin, because I was on the receiving end of what it feels like to be following someone looking perfect in a highly retouched face, in a dress with no message and a couple of emojis and they're lying on a beach and I'm, you know, holding my disabled mother's hand and used to be living that life in Dubai before my mother got sick. And so I would say, if you're listening to this and you're a creator, you have a responsibility. And if you're a consumer of content, you absolutely have the power to control what you ingest. And if you're lonely, please put yourself first. And and the problem is with loneliness, a lot of people don't know they're lonely when they are. It's a retrospect thing and they realize, oh, I'm so lonely. Because a lot of, especially the time when I was dealing with it, you know, we didn't have the conversations we're having right now. So this is 2015, 2014. You can tell you're lonely by a few different symptoms, okay? And many of us experienced this during COVID. Things like your cognitive abilities are not as good. Maybe you've got some memory loss. You feel anxious all the time. Maybe you're a little bit depressed. These are the givens. Quality of sleep is reduced. Um, you feel socially awkward. So when you go out to connect with people, you're a bit socially awkward or you immediately want to withdraw, even though you would love nothing more than to be invited and included. The extension of an invitation leaves you actually feeling quite anxious. And so because you don't want to deal with that anxiety, you'd rather just be at home by yourself. And then you continue to self-isolate. You're also very, very, you become more suspicious of people in this cycle. So if somebody cancels an appointment, you don't take it just as they canceled. You take it as I'm being abandoned and I don't like that person anymore. You hold people to a higher standard as well. So if any of these things are coming up for you, then you could very well be lonely. And please, I'm not a qualified mental health professional. I'm talking from interviewing experts as the curator of expert information. Please go to see a professional. Sometimes talking to our family and friends when they don't know about mental health is even more confusing. So please go and see a professional or talk to somebody. Find out if you are lonely. And once you have that gauge then you've got a wonderful map to start a social media action plan for you. So whether technology is caught up in this or not, how do we acknowledge which connections are superficial so we can start putting our time and energy into authentic connections? Yeah, I think when uh, Simon Sinek's talk that I mentioned, he um, mentioned it the best. The best definition for superficial connection is in his talk. So this is not Simone Heng speaking. This is Simon's words. He said they, Gen Z, admit in their own words that their friends would pass them up if something better came along and that their friends are not there for them, that, that they're not people that they can go to to be there for them. And so that is very different to, remember where I talk about your everyday positively polarized um, hellos and goodbyes in the village? That's 
a kind of superficial connection, but it's positively polarized. Very important there. And those are Susan Pinker's words, not mine. Positively polarized, you know, micro connections through the day. Micro connections, I'm going to coin that. That's a good word. The hellos, the nods to your neighbor, you're part of a community, you're part of a social fabric. But the people you are investing deep time in, who you know are not going to be there for you and will cancel on you for something better, that makes us feel more lonely. Doesn't it? Doesn't that make you feel more lonely just even thinking about those people? Because we've all met those people. And as you get older, the wonderful thing of age and wisdom is that you know to discern and you know how to extract. I remember I was 21 years old when I first identified and worked out that that kind of connection made me feel worse, that it made me feel better. And from there, I changed and audited my social groups. So that's something as well that's worth doing is auditing. Very hard to say that to a tween because when people are in their tweens, all they want is belonging. You want to fit in, you want to belong, you don't want to stand out. God help you, you don't want people staring at you. Um, And so at that age, it's really, really tough. But you, just to be mindful of that, just to be mindful of that, that that sort of transactional relationship where the person isn't really there for you, they're kind of flaky, they will pass you up for something better, that makes you feel worse about you. When you feel worse about you, you feel lonelier. Okay, and on the flip side of that, um, if we audit our friend group and say, this person is not in this for the right reasons, it's transactional, How do we identify relationships that are authentic? Yeah. So firstly, there's reciprocity. It's that person that you never have to worry about if um, it's never like, oh, she invited me over first and, oh, I've hosted her for dinner and she hasn't hosted me. There's none of that involved. It's that person you don't see for 10 years. It still feels exactly the same. And the reciprocity is there. Even if they take a few days to reply, you know in your heart they will. And in a crisis, you know, they'll pick up the phone, they will show up for you and they'll be there for you. So there are three different types of loneliness, according to a gentleman called Bruce A. Austin at the Rochester University of Technology. There is intimate loneliness. This is people craving a good friend or a a partner, best friend or partner, someone they can truly be vulnerable with. The second type of loneliness that we should address in our lives is relational loneliness. This is where you don't have close family and friends that are available to you. Maybe you don't talk to your mom and dad, or you don't talk to one of your siblings. Um, This is also where you don't necessarily have to be vulnerable with people, but you know they are available to you, so you can call them. Um, If you have a party, they'll show up. So there are people that don't feel part of a social fabric. They have relational loneliness. Now, the third rung is collective loneliness. This is where we don't feel we have a shared group with our same vision. So we see this um, as the reason why people join organized religion or people join hobby groups is so they have that collective purpose that binds them. So do you have a group in your life that shares your certain mission? It doesn't have to be your best friends, actually. It can be a separate group from your husband or your wife. But that orbit also needs to be fulfilled. So if you can fill those three orbits, intimate, relational, collective, you're on your way to being very socially well-connected. So it's clear what we're wanting and what types of connections we want, but how do we actually put ourselves in the positions of striving for those three different types of connections? 
do we do we want to go for all of them on a deeper level? Sure. So the the I suppose the the next part of um, that is self connection, which is the individual. And um, Tim Sit, who I talk about in the book, who's a child and family therapist in Canada, he defines self connection as the process of being in touch with the worthiness of oneself, regardless of the external experience you're having. So what that means is, regardless of what's happening in the house right now, can we sit down on our own and check in and go through that checklist and say, okay, am I worthy of love? Have I got at least one person in each of those orbits? So it starts from there. And then there are four pillars of human connection that I talk about in my work that take us to the next level. The first one is building rapport when other people perceive us to be more like them. It's when you first meet a stranger and you've never met them before. And it's to do with the fact that we evolved in tribes. And as a result of evolving in tribes, we equate safety with numbers. And we equate that safety, which then builds trust. Trust is the cornerstone of connection. We equate that with seeing people who are similar to us. And I'm not talking... Just physically, I'm talking in their mannerisms, in the way that they speak, in the things that they speak about. So when we build rapport, we're essentially showing someone we are more like them. So you and I have done this today, earlier before we got in this podcast, we talked about our dogs. We're both dog lovers and that that commonality is how we, and we obviously really love talking about mental health as well. So these are our commonalities. That's how we know we are part of the same tribe in that aspect. So that's how we are building rapport. And then when we move into the next pillar, commonalities connect. It's where we find points of relatability. Points of relatability also builds trust. And over time, what you'll find when you first make friends with a new person and you start meeting up with them, your conversations will normally magnetize towards points of relatability that you have in common. Because you like the person and you want to take that initial rapport into a friendship, you're not going to spend time talking about the things you disagree on and the things that are different. You're human beings, we are wired to connect. We are wired to see how we are closer together. And so that's what's going to happen, points of relatability. From points of relatability, we can deepen the connection into vulnerability. And this is really where true connection happens. If you followed any of Brene Brown's work, this is where all of it, this is where all the good juju happens. This is where we take that acquaintance into the realm of vulnerability. Now, not everyone makes it into that orbit. Not everyone makes it into your intimate connection orbit of that really good girlfriend or that husband or that wife of course it's a very small circle of five you know so that particular place is really where we see who goes to the the next level but it's absolutely okay too to have the people in the first two levels of of um rapport so sometimes you might be part of a volunteer group that is part of your collective connection because you all want to help people that's your shared mission where you're just acquaintances with good rapport. That's really healthy for you too. You need that as well. The Mm -hmm. next part um, with the points of relatability, maybe those are like your work colleagues. It's a little bit deeper. You're seeing them five days a week at work. They're not the people you're super vulnerable with because maybe you want to have that boundary at work, but they still have deep value. I even have cousins who are in the Um, I would say, are in the relational connection category. So we don't talk so vulnerably. I mean, now they've read the book, The Cat is Out of the Bag, but we are are second or third cousins who really love each other. But 
we don't talk about deep things. I don't call them with an existential crisis. So that's okay too. You need that rung as well. And the final part of, um, of connection there that I think really helps is being of service. And this is how we can feel really socially connected because we're contributing to a bigger community than ourselves. And this helps us to not feel forgotten by the tribe. Our worst, one of our worst fears of as human beings, and you see this with tweens, is social rejection. We will do almost anything to avoid that pain. So when we positively impact our community, we feel safer and more socially connected. So being of service isn't just volunteering your time. It isn't just donating money. It's walking through the world with an others-driven mindset in a self-driven world. Those are my four things. So rapport, commonalities connect, vulnerability, service. If you put those into play, you're going to feel much more socially connected. And it's certainly worked for me in my life and the transformation the last three years since emerging out of therapy and entering this world of connection and learning about it and being able to live it. What a change it has made. So I understand that we're not going to get the quality of connection through technology that we would through in-person connection, but what kind of benefits can we get from establishing these digitally? Technology is a way station. We should try not to use it as the destination. So you use it as the modality to bring you towards connection versus I'm going to just stay on this app or platform and continue to chat and continue to chat never progress it to real life, never have any intention of progressing it to real life, never manage the expectations of the person I'm engaging with on it because they might think it's leading to something in real life and I'm just happy to hang on this app forever and and never meet them, have a phone call with them, any of that that good stuff. Use it as a way station. Use it as a modality to progress the connection, not as the destination. And then... It's the most beautiful thing. For somebody with the childhood I had where I felt very isolated, I grew up in what is considered a big country town in Australia. I felt isolated not just in terms of my ethnicity and my cultural background, but in terms of even my character and the way that I thought. And then, of course, some of the traumatic things that happened to me. What I would have given for this as a means to find my tribe, no matter where in the world they lived regardless of geography. And I think that that is incredible. You can find your tribe regardless of geography. I love that you called it a way station, but help me understand why should we use it that way? What's the reason that we want to make in-person connections our final destination? So what we know is that human touch with the right person is very, very comforting. So one of the people I interviewed for my YouTube and in my book, Dr. James Cohn, um, he did a very famous study that people receiving an electric shock with their hand being held not by a nurse but by an intimate connection felt pain less than people being zapped and having their hand held by a nurse or not having their hand held. So what we know from that is that firstly human touch is extremely soothing to us and we only get that from in person. And it's really important for um, our stress, reducing our stress responses and our stress hormones. So number one, human touch happens in person. 
Um, number two, people feel seen more fully in person than they do via digital technology. We know that people project avatars of themselves into the world via online. They do it in real life too. And I talk about in the book when we put a mask of ourselves into the world, but it's much more easy to do that in a digital realm. And so true connection happens when we can fully be seen by each other. And so if one person um, is really game to meet in person, the other person kind of isn't, that technology can never provide that true reciprocity. That real being seen happens face to face. So those are the two big reasons for me that use it as a way station. And lonely people, by the way, lonely people tend to use technology more as a way station and also in a way, and this is from the work of Dr. John Cassiopo, who's like the world leader in the study of loneliness. He's sadly passed away very recently. But what Cassiopo found was people who are lonely tend to project avatars of themselves online more than people who are not lonely. And therefore that of course increases loneliness because there's a feeling that I'm only being seen and accepted and connected with as based on this avatar that is not really me. In person, you cannot do those things as much. It's harder to do those things. So you're really being seen. That makes a lot of sense. Simone, this has been such a good talk. Um, But your book has so much more to it than just the piece on technology. If anything that I said on here resonated and you want to know more, please grab Secret Pandemic, The Search for Connection in a Lonely World on Amazon. Uh, It's currently a bestseller in the hot new release for social science reference category. So if that is an endorsement, please, I want it to change as many lives as possible. It's an incredible book. It's really well-researched and well-written. And I felt closer to you through reading it. Thank you for being so vulnerable in your book and on this podcast. This book is written in a way that I hope you will feel less alone because it is so raw. How do you continually make that choice to bring your real self to the table every day and to put so much honesty in words in a book that'll last forever? I think I'm going to give you the really chicken answer is that I lived, and I might cry right now, I lived so many years of living it the false way. And it was so much more unnatural and forced and painful pretending everything was perfect than it is just being like really human and going, I don't know everything and I'm deeply flawed and I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm just sharing. Um, and it just is much more real to the way I'm supposed to function as a human in the world. Everyone is different, but for me, I can tell you now, thinking of how painful it used to be trying to pretend everything was fine is what keeps me accountable because I never want to live like that again. Simone, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to hear your personal experience and the years worth of research that you've spent on compiling this information on authentic connections. I'll add Simone Hang's information and link to buy her book in the show notes. Trust me, this is a book you'll want to open again and again. Excellent work. This episode was produced by me, and I'll share another one with you next week. Just hit subscribe to stay in the loop.